Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about redefining home for the unhoused, unsheltered, and underserved. My first guest is Mary Beth Shin. She is a Cornelius Vanderbilt professor at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Shin co-led the Family Option Study of Different Approaches to Ending Family Homelessness, evaluated the initial study of the Pathways Housing First experiment, and developed a model used by New York City to target its homelessness prevention services. She is the author of In the Midst of Plenty, Homelessness and What to Do About It. Welcome, Dr. Shin. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks so much for having me. This is a huge topic, particularly today when we look at the climate in America and in the world where we are reemerging after nearly a year and a half of the pandemic and the growth, the exponential growth of homelessness in the streets, particularly in big urban areas like Los Angeles. You know, I think because of the pandemic, uh, many shelters, particularly winter shelter programs that might have been operated by churches, didn't open their doors this year. And so people who were scared of going to congregate shelters, many of which have become COVID hotspots, went to the streets instead. And so we're certainly seeing the growth of folks who are on the streets and when we talk about homelessness in the United States, there is a history, and I'd love for you to share a little bit about the history and why people become homeless. Homelessness is basically a problem of housing affordability. Back in the 1970s, we had very little homelessness. It's hard for young people today to imagine a time when they didn't have to pick their way around their fellow citizens on the street. But back in the 1970s, social scientists thought that homelessness was really coming to an end. It was only uh, some older men. One of the books at the time was Old Men, Drunk and Sober. Um, and the thought was that when that generation passed, homelessness would be over. But that's not what happened. Housing costs continued to rise and incomes failed to keep up. So what was once a surplus of housing units that poor people could afford became a bigger and bigger deficit and homelessness arose. You know, it's interesting that you, you mentioned this because the other thing that I think about when it comes to homelessness is looking at basic needs. You know that to live a life with dignity, basic needs and services must be met. And being homeless tinkers with psychological safety, not just phys physical safety. That's true. Um, and uh, it's psychological safety in part because physical safety is at risk. Uh, but it's hard sometimes when you're down and out to imagine a way out. Yeah. And yet 
there are resources available, but it's very hard to get to them, to access them. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in fact, most people manage to get out of homelessness. Many, many more people pass through homelessness and out the other end than are homeless at any given time. Uh, back in 1990, early in the uh, current epidemic of homelessness, uh, somebody did a survey of people who just lived in regular housing, could answer the telephone, and asked whether they'd ever been homeless. And 7% of Americans said yes, they had been homeless and in shelters or on the streets or transportation hubs. And if you counted doubling up with somebody else, thinking of yourself as homeless and not having a place to stay, so staying with your friends or your neighbors, then it was 14% of Americans. So a lot of people have the experience of having been homeless and passing through and getting out the other side. And they may not necessarily identify at, at the outset as, as having been homeless. Like when, you, when you're couch surfing, right, or staying with friends, you might not look at that as homelessness. You look at it as in between or a stepping stone. Mm-hmm. That's true. But the 14% were people who actually said, yes, yeah. I was homeless. I, they applied that label to themselves. Why are we not ending homelessness? What keeps us from doing so? Well, I think it's a question of resources. Um, the uh, I said there was a problem of housing affordability. That's really a problem of income inequality. That is, people at the bottom don't have the wherewithal to uh, afford housing. Uh, way too many Americans are paying much too much for their housing. And probably many of your listeners are paying more than 30% of their income on housing, which is what the Department of Housing and Urban Development says we should spend. Um, so uh, that, that um, lack of wherewithal to buy housing or to rent housing is really at the source. And yet housing is very much a basic need. And when we look at, I'm now thinking in my mind's eye about the encampments in Los Angeles, um, where we see really streets filled with people. How do we go into our communities and help um, alleviate or relieve uh, the homelessness? Well, is it just we, housing? Is it is it just a simple thing? We make afford enough affordable housing, and we put people in there. But you say that the problem is bigger than this. Well, if we had enough affordable housing, that would go a long way towards ending homelessness. In the case of families, that would do the trick. So, in this big study that we did, uh, we found that if we simply offered families housing vouchers that kept their rental expenses to thirty percent of their income. We not only ended homelessness, but we had these radiating benefits for other aspects of family life. Psychological distress went down, substance abuse went down, domestic violence went down. So things that can sometimes cause homelessness were reduced when people had a stable place to be. Food insecurity was decreased. Kids' school attendance got better. Their behavior problems went down. We had these radiating benefits. Um, And only by providing people housing, even without additional services. Now, for folks with serious mental illnesses, we're going to need something more. But housing is still at the root of it. And when we talk about resources beyond housing, are there wraparound services that help ease um, the transition from homelessness to 
um, being in homes and then um, sort of rebounding and being able to move forward in one's life? Or is it simply just the housing? Well, it depends on the person. Uh, so for folks with serious mental illnesses, maybe co-occurring substance use problems, uh, there's a model called permanent supportive housing following a housing first model that works well. The idea is to put people into regular housing of their choice with private landlords and to give them services under their control. So people can use substance services, they can use vocational services, recreation, medical services, mental health services, but services that they choose, because services work a whole lot better if they're freely chosen than if they're foisted on people. Of course, of course. What can we as listeners and consumers and citizens do? How can we help? Probably the most important thing is to lobby your congressional representatives, your senators, for a massive expansion of the Housing Choice Voucher Program. That was part of President Biden's platform in the campaign to try to make these vouchers available to everybody who uh, was eligible for them by reason of income. Um, that, and we've seen uh, an increase in those vouchers uh, but in the federal legislation that has passed so far, but we haven't seen uh, that commitment to making them fully available to people. Well, I didn't even know that they exist. They are the main way that we're subsidizing housing for poor people at this point. And the weight, it's my understanding that for uh, federally subsidized housing, the wait time um, to be approved is significant, in some cases years. The waiting lists are very long. It varies from place to place how long those waiting lists are, but they they are long in, in many places. So we need more of them so that the wait lists can be much shorter. There's some other things we need to do, too. Um, we need to change our zoning. Right now, uh, there are a lot of lots that you can only build a McMansion on. You have to have a single-family home. You have to have a large acreage. Um, and if we allow duplexes or triplexes, especially near transit routes, uh, that would cut down the costs of housing and make housing more affordable. What about adaptive reuse of older buildings or also creating co-housing communities? Mm -hmm. Both of those are great suggestions, uh, and they work differently in different places. So some places have a lot of older buildings that can be repurposed and, and refurbished. Um, other places uh, on the West Coast in particular, we're going to have to build housing. But we need to think about housing models that aren't just you know, two bedrooms, two baths, and the yeah. white picket fence. So co-housing um, is something that young people uh, often like, where you have, uh, that, that means that you have a small private space and there's some larger shared amenities. Uh, we used to call that single room occupancy hotels, uh, but the, the current models that are being developed are much more attractive than that, and they're cheaper than everybody having everything in their own unit. And they also create a sense of community. I mean, if you are in a homeless situation, um, I know that part of the appeal for some folks who are you know, find themselves homeless is that there is community in the streets, that they're finding a, a pod or a tribe as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and so housing that helps to build community is important as well. 
How can the book that you wrote, which is um, in the midst of plenty, homelessness and what to do about it, how can the book be used to affect tangible change outside of academia, right? Because <laughs> academia, it's it's easy to report the data, the findings and and show us the way, but then there's the action part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, academics spend much too much time talking to ourselves and to each other. <laughs> Uh, and the reason we wrote the book is to try to um, get the word out to the larger community that we have solutions, that we know how to end homelessness, uh, that it's a matter of resources and political will. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Mary Beth Shin to learn more about her work and the book In the Midst of Plenty, Homelessness and What to Do About It. Please visit Vanderbilt.edu and in the search bar, Mary Beth Shin, S-H-I-N-N. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Just a minute here. Before we pause, I want to talk about the happiness of good hair days. Let's face it. There is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all solution for fabulous hair. One product that works well for curls might make fine hair limp and dull, and so on and so on. And if hormonal changes are giving you bad hair days, join the club. But thanks to pros, I have a personalized hair care routine that has made me one happy camper with fabulous hair. Pros makes custom hair care that is effective because it's personal. Pros to personalize hair care products target your tresses with natural ingredients tailored to your needs with proven results. Get started today with an in-depth consultation that asks you as a person about your real-world lifestyle habits. Questions are asked about nutrition, exercise, life stressors, hair care habits, and more. Pros even ask about where you live to learn how climate impacts your hair. Next up, Pros analyzes all the answers and determines a unique hair care prescription of products to match your hair and scalp, plus goals for lovelier locks. My custom blended hair care plan includes a pre-shampoo mask, shampoo conditioner, and root source hair supplements that have given me a fuller, stronger, silky smooth, and happier head of hair. Pros is a carbon-neutral certified B Corporation and an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty products. All Pros products are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. And if you're not 100% positive Pros is the best hair care you've had, they will take the products back. No questions asked. Pretty impressive, eh? Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash happiness. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash happiness for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. Now here's the break. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back continuing the conversation with Mary Beth Shin. We're talking about redefining home for the unhoused, unsheltered, and underserved. Let's get back to it. Mary Beth, I want to return to the conversation and focus on some of the myths about homelessness. Okay. Well, one myth is that homelessness is all middle-aged drug addicts. Uh, But in fact, the age at which you're most likely to find yourself in a homeless shelter in the United States is infancy. Uh, 
homelessness rates stay really high in the preschool years. They drop when kids get to public school and childcare expenses drop. Why is that? Well, having a child is expensive. I mean, children are a blessing, but they outgrow their clothes every time you turn around. <laughs> and most importantly, they take a parent out of the labor force, either to care for the child or they require the parent to uh, pay somebody else to care for that child. And so when kids are young is a time when families are at risk of homelessness. And that does uh, fly in the face of what we think homelessness looks like. That's for sure. Uh, I think that's true. When it comes to substance abuse, um, for sure there are people who abuse substances um, who are homeless. Um, some of them didn't hit the bottle before they hit the street. Uh, they became homeless first and then in despair uh, started using substances. Um, others became homeless because of substances. But, you know, I teach at a university and a lot of college students use substances too. Um, but they're not homeless. What they have is resources. They have families. Uh, and so the mistakes that they make, and all of us make mistakes, don't pitch them into homelessness. But for somebody who's living on the edges, hanging on by their fingernails, uh, any kind of mistake can lead them over the edge. And let's talk a little bit about mental illness, because in this case, um, in my experience in working with homelessness in Los Angeles, when I was a grad student, you have some people within the population that prefer being on the streets. That depends on what's on offer, right? If what's on offer is a congregate shelter, uh, then, you know, where you're going to stay in a room with a bunch of other people and you're going to get kicked out in the morning and you can come back at night. Uh, many people will prefer to live on the streets. If what's on offer is a home, an apartment of your own, that really changes. So we found in Nashville, where I'm from, that some of the people who were in encampments and who said, nah, nah, I want to stay here. I'd really rather be outside changed their tune as soon as they saw some other people actually getting into housing. And when they saw some of their friends getting into the housing, they said, how do I get on that list? Yeah. And, and I know from my own experience, having a place of one's own when you've come through a difficult time makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely. Do you have a couple of stories that might come to mind of a person or a family that has come through the cycle of homelessness and, and out the other side? Mm -hmm. um, absolutely. There are many of them. Um, so let me give you one example. This is a mother from Kansas City uh, who was part of our study of, of families experiencing homelessness. And she got a housing voucher. She got into to housing. Um, and she said, so for me to actually have a nice house for our children without having to be completely worried about rent, rent, rent for this month, because my husband's trying to go back to school full time and so am I. That way we know we're supported. We don't have to worry about losing the house because we're trying to go to school and work and we're safe, we're okay, and we'll get things back on track. So giving people a platform to get their lives together is so important. It's not the hand out. It is the hand up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And maybe that's where we need to adjust our attitudes, where society needs to uh, understand that these are not uh, simply handouts, you know, that we're not uh, taking away uh, people's self-determination, but trying to give them the resources so they can give back. 
So we're breaking the cycle for the next generation. Uh, we're helping people get back to being productive members of society. I don't know about you, but I think back to when I was a young undergraduate student and, you know, trying to make ends meet, trying to work, go to school and do all of that. And in a, in a, in a major metropolitan city for me, in this case, it was Boston. Um, it was expensive and it was hard. It is. And many young people today who come from middle class households get help from their parents. Yeah. We don't expect them to be independent when they turn 18. We send them off to college and we put them in dormitories and those are subsidized by maybe student loans, maybe by their parents, maybe by the university or the state. Uh, and when they come out with a college degree, I can say for my own kids, they got their room back until they could figure <laughs> out what, what to do. So middle-class kids have a cushion that their families, their relatives, their neighbors uh, can provide for them. And poor families often don't have that cushion. And the disadvantage is being poor. The disadvantage is being poor. Racial minorities are at greater risk in part because their families and relatives have less wealth because of structural uh, discrimination, discrimination in the past, and uh, that stop people from accumulating wealth and current discrimination. In an ideal world, if we pulled up our bootstraps and got busy working on this in earnest, how long would it take to end homelessness in America? I mean, how, how quickly could we solve this problem? Well, we cut homelessness among veterans in half over the course of a decade because we put uh, our money into it. The Veterans Administration, the Department of Housing and Urban Development all put in resources. The mayor's challenge meant cities put in resources. And we cut homelessness in half. We could do that for every population if we put the resources in. Uh, and we could probably, if there were enough resources, really end it in that time frame. That would be wonderful. That would that would truly be wonderful. And I think what I'm hearing is that we have to educate ourselves first, you know, so we know how to vote. We know how to lobby. We know how to be activated in order to contribute towards the solution. Mm -hmm. I think it's important people realize that there is a solution. That is, if you think nothing can can be done, if you think the poor are always with us, then you turn the other way. Um, you don't want to have anything to do with it because it's too awful and you, you don't know what to do. But if you understand that there are ways out, that we know what to do, even for people with serious mental illnesses, we have solutions, uh, then that's a different story. Then it's time to lobby our politicians to put the resources in. When we look at the homeless population and some people have fear or they turn the other cheek or they don't see themselves as, you know, one, two or three degrees from that being our own reality, it's it's easy to become hardened and dispassionate. But when we see that that other person could be ourselves or, you know, we are responsible, we are our brother and sister's keeper because it just makes sound business. You know, when everybody is doing well, we, we do well. And when, when a part of the population is marginalized and separated and cleaved from society, it, cre it creates a whole host of other problems. 
It, it does. And those people aren't in a position to contribute to society, to, to the rest of us. Um, and it hardens us to walk by people on, on the street um, and to look the other way or not look the other way. Whatever, there is no good solution when our fellow citizens are living in the streets. It's interesting. In, in Southern California, in Los Angeles, in front of the VA in West Los Angeles, there is now a, an extraordinarily large encampment. At the VA, there have always been encampments, but now it, as a result of COVID, the streets are lined with tents. And one other thing I found was very interesting in walking around that neighborhood is many of those tents had American flags hanging. I mean, there was a sense of pride and patriotism. And I, I don't know the other word that I'm really looking for, but in, in community, even amongst this difficult scenario. Mm -hmm. You know, I think people want to be part of society. They see themselves as contributing. They are contributing to each other uh, often on the streets. People who are homeless themselves are often very generous to, to other people, but they just don't have the wherewithal to do that in ordinary neighborhoods, in ordinary housing. Well, and the area that I was just speaking of is an extremely affluent area. I mean, the, the real estate values there are astronomical, and it doesn't make sense, I suppose, to build housing there. But there are other places within urban and suburban environments that we can make safe havens. We need to build more housing everywhere, really. And in many cases, we have in the last decades downzoned, made it more difficult to build multifamily housing. And we need to reverse some of that. And is this because of the, the, the McMansions have taken over the idea of building lot line to lot line in, in dense populate, densely populated areas? Well, I think it's a manifestation of income inequality. Um, it, income inequality matters at the bottom because people don't have the wherewithal to rent apartments. And it matters at the top because uh, people with wealth outbid the other uses for land. You put in a golf course or a McMansion instead of an apartment building. And so we need to be able to create housing where people are to be able to house all of our citizens. If someone were interested in being part of this solution and wanted to seek out an organization or group of organizations to donate their time, their resources, their actual money to, where would you suggest or where would you suggest we look? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the most effective organizations at the national level is called the National Alliance to End Homelessness. And it's doing some of the lobbying and it's doing some of the training of local uh, service providers to help them know what works best. Um, so one place to, to give money would be the National Alliance to End Homelessness. If you want to get involved more locally in your community, I'm sure there are homeless service organizations that can use volunteer help. But I think the most important thing for those organizations is to work not just on making homelessness a little less miserable, but to work on getting people housed. And so you want to be sure to pick an organization that really is focused on getting people back into housing. 
Thank you. Thank you for writing this book in the midst of plenty homelessness and what to do about it. To learn more about the work of Dr. Mary Beth Shin, please visit her at Vanderbilt.edu. And in the search bar, put in Mary Beth Shin, S-H-I-N-N. Thank you. Thanks for giving of yourself and your time to the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Continuing the conversation about redefining home for the unhoused, unsheltered, and underserved. My next guest is Rusty Smith. He is the Associate Director of Rural Studio, Auburn University's internationally recognized design-build program located in West Alabama. Smith spearheads the Front Porch Initiative, managing a multifaceted effort to mitigate the rural housing crisis through both affordable quality home construction and national coalition building for home procurement. Rusty, thanks for joining us on the show today. Hey, Lisa, thanks for having us. We're really happy to be here. Oh, I am. I am so happy to have you on the show. One of my COVID projects has been catching up on documentary films that I love. And I recently watched, although it's an older film, Citizen Architect, Samuel Mockby and the Spirit of the Rural Studio. And I would love for you to explain to our listeners the background of the Rural Studio, because it's quite a remarkable project that has endured for decades. Yeah, sure. Probably one of the best ways to first sort of give some background on Rural Studio is to kind of first explain that it's a it's a piece of a piece of a piece of a thing. <laughs> We're uh, part of Auburn University. Auburn University is a reasonable sized land grant institution uh, located in Alabama. We've got about uh, close to 30,000 students, most of which are, are undergraduate students on campus. And and the, the university is made up of 13 colleges. So that's a, you know, those, those are 13 pieces of the big thing of Auburn University. Um, one of those colleges is the College of Architecture, Design and Construction. We're part of that college. So that's a piece of the piece of the thing. Uh, inside of uh, that college, uh, College of Architecture, Design and Construction, uh, is the School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape Architecture. And we're a piece of that. Uh, that school has an architecture program, which is an undergraduate program where our students come and study for five years. That's normal for an accredited undergraduate degree of architecture. Um, and as part of that five years of study, the students in the architecture program have the opportunity to spend uh, anywhere from one semester uh, to up to two years of their five years of study uh, with us um, at Rural Studio uh, in uh, West Alabama. So we're Rural Studio is um, Located about two and a half to three hours away from campus, depending on how fast you drive, uh, and the students do uh, they leave they leave campus and they they come and and, and live and and work with us. So it's it's really um, a lot like a study abroad program, um, except the students don't go overseas. Uh, they just really go three hours away from campus, uh, and much like a study abroad program, uh, everything that they're familiar with is different. The, the history is different. The culture is different. Uh, the food is different. The language is different. And so it really is uh, serves one of those roles as an immersion program. 
So while the students live with us, they're taking all their courses there with us that they just like they normally would on campus. And as part of their architectural studies, uh, they both uh, are tasked with both designing and building all kinds of community infrastructure. So we're what's called a in the architectural education business, a design build program. So the students both design and build uh, their projects as students in architecture school. I think we need to also really talk about who the client is, that typically people think of architects as serving those clients or organizations that have a lot of resources to build custom projects. But the beauty of the rural studio is the client is a bit different. That's right. Yeah. So we, we, the, the program was started almost 30 years ago by Samuel Mockby and DK Ruth. And, and when they started the program, they had a, uh, just a handful of really simple premises. Um, the, the, the first one was that, um, you know, when you come to university, uh, the, the university is all about building knowledge. Um, but we found when you're sort of trying to tackle really complex problems that, um, knowledge is really important, but know-how is even more important. And so, you know, you, you, you gain know-how through um, experience. And so the first premise that, that the program was founded under is that uh, the best way to learn how to do something is to actually do it, right? So, so Rural Studio is really hands-on. The students uh, really do kind of work with the community and with the community members. The second thing uh, that the program was founded a, a, around was that, um, again, faced with difficult problems that you're, are really complex and you don't quite know what the answer to those challenges may be, that the best way to, to tackle them is to, is to tackle them together. So we're also really co- uh, a collaborative. And then the third uh, sort of idea that undergirds the program, and this is really sort of, uh, I think, to begin to answer your question more directly, it's that really that we believe that uh, everyone, no matter their circumstance, really deserves a safe and durable, healthy and dignified place to call home. Um, that, you know, uh, uh, this, this kind of uh, uh, um, is, is really a, a right that we have. It's a human right towards, you know, kind of healthy, dignified housing. And so the program uh, aims to do that in a, in a community that, that, that really um, – uh, where that is not always an option for our uh, community members and our neighbors. You said something to me leading up to when we began our the recorded part of our conversation about the right to be adequately housed and decently fed, and yeah, and that really struck me because I think it's something particularly over the past two years that has placed this country really in a very difficult place because we have a tremendous population that does not have these two basic needs being met. Yeah, that's right. And, well, you know, there's, there's really thousands of challenges that it's, it's, it can be overwhelming when you begin to think about the challenges that so many of us and so many in our, in our communities face. And, and it's really important to kind of tackle all of those challenges at, at once. But, you, you know, you know we're, we really are what I would we kind of refer to as a kind of a housing and food first organization. So uh, unless folks are adequately housed and decently fed, it's, it's really tough to begin to address a lot of the other issues that um, our, our community members face. And so that's just sort of fundamentally important to begin to um, 
try to really tackle those two issues again simultaneously, but first and foremost, always have them kind of in the in the foreground of the work that we're trying to to do. Okay, I've got a question. Within a rural studio or another thing within the thing within the thing, there is the front porch <laughs> <Right>. initiative. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So so we've got, you know, like I said, almost 30 years of, of working in rural West Alabama uh, with our students, uh, you know, developing and providing um, really great, uh, what we hope is affordable, uh, high performance housing. And, and, and we think about performance in a number of ways, you know, the, the kind of the energy performance, the durability and resilience, the contribution to health and wellness. Of, of the folks that live in the homes. Um, we've got a lot of experience doing that. And we deliver the, those houses ourselves, our students do. Uh, so again, they design and build them. What the Front Porch Initiative aims to do is sort of take that almost three decades of learning, the products that we've developed and the know-how that we've developed around those houses and actually share them outside of our West Alabama service area um, with other housing providers that are trying to do similar things um, uh, in their own service areas. Uh, so we're currently working around the Southeast with a number of partners. That footprint continues to grow where our team in the Front Porch Initiative, again, provides technical assistance, documentation, you know, sort of boots on the ground with other housing providers so they can build these houses for themselves. We've got a, you know, a, uh, an example of a partner uh, that would be really interesting to kind of share. It, it sort, of, sort of begins to touch on the, the kind of the complexities of this this issue is we're working with a partner down in Mariana, Florida called Chipola Area Habitat. It, it actually is a Habitat for Humanity partner. We're working with them. Um, they're building our houses using their sort of traditional uh, Habitat volunteer model. We're working with partners that are bringing um, kind of, uh, you know, sort of uh, primary mortgage financing to the to the project in in I think innovative ways, and then also we're working with um, Chipola College, which has a construction uh, program that offers uh, certified construction skills to students in the college um, through their construction technical program. Those students would normally be getting that uh, experience in a laboratory, but what we're doing there is the students are actually building the homes in the field um, uh, with their instructors and, and with some of our input um, so that they're gaining really valuable construction knowledge um, around high performance home delivery right there in their own community. This is wonderful. That becomes, yeah, that well, well so, so it, it, it sort of gets better, I think, because that becomes really valuable. This is also this area that we're working with in the panhandle of Florida is a Hurricane Michael recovery project. So, you know, Hurricane Michael came through a couple of years ago. Um, there's there's still so much work to be done there. You know, in Mariana, there's still so many blue tarp roofs of homes that haven't been uh, repaired. Um, and it's because there's not really an adequate, uh, knowledgeable workforce in the area to, to do that. So uh, building a workforce um, in a community like this, um, you know, it, it obviously helps us to build the homes back better than they may have been. But it also that having that ready and willing workforce is also a really important preparedness strategy in a community who knows this is going to happen again and again and again. So when you begin to think about resiliency in a community, having a workforce there to respond in these moments of crisis is really key in actually uh, 
building that resiliency that, that our communities so desperately need. Oh, this is fabulous. You know, the resiliency, the, the sustainability, the strength of the community itself, right? Because there's pride of place. You know that you can take right. care of your, yourselves and your own. It's it's pretty fa- fabulous. We are going to need to take a break. And when we return, we'll continue the conversation with Rusty Smith, the Associate Director of Rural Studio, to learn more about Rural Studio. And I really urge that you do because it is really interesting and the work they do is pretty cool. Go to RuralStudio.org on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Rural Studio. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Rejoining the conversation with Rusty Smith, we're talking about redefining home for the unhoused, unsheltered, and underserved. Rusty, I would love for you to share with our listeners some statistics. They were kind of mind-blowing to me when you shared them about persistently impoverished places within America and what that means. Yeah, thanks. It's really important. So where we work in West Alabama, you know, sort of located in Hell County, it is, is considered to be a persistently impoverished county. And that's just simply a federal designation that means that 20% or more of a population in a given county has lived consistently and persistently in poverty for 30 years or more. Uh, and of course, as you might imagine, when you begin to look at subsets of those populations, so you look at childhood populations, elderly populations, people of color, uh, quite honestly, those percentages jump dramatically into the 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, sometimes even 80%. There are about 375 to 380 persistently impoverished counties in the United States. They run uh, generally fairly continuously along the kind of the, the, the Rio Grande colonias part of the United States across the Louisiana and Mississippi Delta through the Black Belt of Alabama. And then they, they sort of take a hard turn north uh, through Georgia and up through Appalachia. So they're all really different. You know, they're different historically, geographically, geologically, culturally. They're, they're different in every way. Um, but they do share a number of things that are similar. Um, the, the first is, is that over 85% of them are rural. So this issue of persistent poverty is a particularly rural in, in nature. The other thing that they share in common is that they're all historic landscapes of extraction where they've had for decades and even centuries, all sorts of resources taken out of the ground, whether mm. it's oil, cotton, iron, minerals, or maybe even in our case, cotton, they've all been taken out of the ground through uncompensated human labor, 
with no resources ever put back. It's, it's sort of this issue of persistent poverty is a particular challenge that sort of lies at the root of so many of the issues that we're, we're working to address. And when we talk about building homes for the people in these communities, there are a couple things that come to mind. First is the, the challenges of building affordable housing, especially now when construction products are at such a premium. You know, the supply chain is, is, is tight. Um, and these are, you know, very current challenges, but, um, I'm sure that there's been an impact there and I would love to hear about that. And then I have a t- many more questions, but that's the first one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, the, so, um, you know, the first thing we have to do is actually really talk about affordability and what that means. Yes. So the first thing that we think about affordability, and this is really important. We always think about what a home costs to build, right? And that's, and that's really, that's a really important question, right? Uh, it's, it is, it is important. And we address that directly. And I think in through a lot of our innovation, but we also, um, have to think about a question that's more useful, I think, in addressing some of the real systemic issues relative to equitable access and affordability. And it's really, um, has to do with not just what a house costs to build, but all, actually what it affords. And that's how we think about affordability is what does a home afford a homeowner? What that means, or maybe another way to ask it is if, if an if a important question is to ask what a home costs to build, like that's important. It, it's more useful sometimes to ask the question, what does it cost if we don't build it? And that understanding that there are costs associated, extraordinarily costs associated with not doing these sorts of things. It's this, this, what we refer to as the hidden cost of inaction, um, understanding what those costs are. And then sometimes even more importantly, who pays those costs is a really fundamentally important part of addressing that, um, challenge. So I can talk about if you want to, in, 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 in a little more detail about how we do that, if that's of interest. It's definitely of interest. And let's, I think, you know, illuminate those hidden costs, because obviously if, if somebody is not housed safely and does not have basic needs being met, there are risks and costs in terms of overall health and well-being. Yeah, that's right. So there's, there's really, um, you know, what we found is that there are really four fundamental challenges to our homeowners. And, you know, they're first, you know, you sort of think about the probably the easiest one to sort of talk about is that, you know, our homeowners uh, might have an unexpected energy bill in, in their lives. So, you know, in, in one month, they might have an uh, energy bill of 35 to $40 a month. And then two months later, they may have an energy bill of 300 to $400 a month in their lives. And, and they haven't really done anything different, right? The house was the same comfort level and, and what have you. So that's, that's really the first challenge is these wildly fluctuating energy bills. The second thing that happens um, is that our homeowners, um, you know, we, we live in a, we live in a place of really uh, volatile climactic activity. I would say we live in the uh, tornado alley and right in the catcher's mitt of the Gulf coast. So every, um, hurricane that comes up into the Gulf Coast turns into a tropical storm right on top of us. So, so, um, you know, sort of maintenance on a home is, is really, uh, can has a, have a big impact, particularly around storm related, uh, uh, damage and, and maintenance has, can have a big impact on our homeowners. 
Uh, the third thing that happens is our homeowners can have an unexpected health care event in our lives. That's become increasingly clear, particularly during the pandemic, the impact that those things can happen or have. And then the fourth thing that happens is our homeowners can have an unexpected, what we just think of as an income disruption. So, you know, our homeowners live in really, they're, they're sort of supported a lot of times by, you know, part-time work, seasonal work and shift work. They live in uh, complex, what we call kinship networks of sharing. So, you know, sharing uh, uh, transportation, child care, elder care, income, and even housing. So uh, any disruption in that sharing income can, can cause a significant impact on our families' lives. So in the end, anything that we can do in the design, construction, and procurement of a home, they can not just think about what it costs to build the home, but can actually begin to address those four areas of energy efficiency, durability and resilience, health and wellness, and how a home can begin to strengthen community networks. If we can begin to tackle those four things, we're sort of off to the races relative to really beginning to address the systemic challenges to access and affordability uh, in the way that we're sort of uh, uh, talking about. This expands the definition of home in a new way, at least in my view, from what I'm hearing you say. We, you know, we think of home as structure, a place for shelter, and certainly in, in the last couple of years, it's, we've expanded the definition, you know, exponentially. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I think that many of us have not really looked at home in the context of what you're doing with Front Porch and Rural Studio to really serve the community holistically with kind of wraparound intentions with the work. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, spot on. I mean, you know, these these issues that we face there, you know, it's it's funny when I say that, you know, we're we're a housing first organization, but these these issues, you know, solving housing access and affordability, quite honestly, is, is not a brick and mortar problem. It's not you know, we're not going to solve these problems by as architects by, you know, building the house this way or 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 building it some other way. It's a really a systems based challenge that touches a lot of different seemingly disconnected things. What we can do as architects, however, is all of these sort of invisible systems become visible in the built environment. And so our partners who actually can begin to influence the changes that really need to happen around this issue of access and affordability, they can actually see those impacts, um, you know, as we build the house this way or build the house that way. And sometimes little things, um, that don't seem like they may change much can actually have huge impacts uh, downstream somewhere that, that, that are that can be unseen. Talk a little bit about maybe you have a story of a homeowner who takes possession of one of these homes. Some of the things that they say to you about the change in their lives as a result of having this home. Well, you know, so so, what, so one of the things that's a that's a, a really good kind of insightful question because one of the questions we always get is like, how do you know you're making impact? <laughs> you know, and I, and I think that you know, particularly when you're working really broadly, you know, when you're when you're sort of doing one single thing, it, it, strangely, it, it, it it's inter it's easy easier to measure impact than when you're sort of working across a system and trying to make systems changes. So, you know, some of the some of the ways we measure, you know, with so feedback from our homeowners are, you know, they're kind of profound things where we can, you think about just having a warm, dry room to come home to and study after school. 
uh, is an important thing. But then when you see a homeowner that, that has a, a child that graduates from high school and goes off to college, is the first member of their family to do so. And you think the impact that that house likely had on, on that as opening up an opportunity just because of having that, that warm, dry space place to, 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 to work in and to live in, you know, those are some of the ways that we measure impact. Then, then there's little things like, you know, um, you know, we working with a, a, a homeowner, it's, it's, it's too much to tell now, but the, the short of it is we do a lot of uh, energy monitoring on our homes. We, we monitor our homes quite a bit post-occupancy. And uh, we, we found as we're sort of looking at the kind of energy use in one of the houses, we, we found that, um, one of the circuits in the in the home was using a lot of energy that we didn't expect it to, to, to be using in this in this otherwise really high performance home. And uh, we you know contacted the homeowner and we, we said, you know, what's going on? What's changed? What's what's happening that this energy usage is so high? And, this, and it just this literally this one plug in the house. She said, oh, it's really great. One of my friends bought a new chest freezer. And she gave me her old one. And so now it's great. I can buy more food in bulk and I can prepare food ahead of time. And it's saving me a lot of money. Well, of course, it was a 30-year-old chest freezer that was using <laughs> more energy than the entire heating and cooling system in the house. So, you know, what was great is that, one, we knew it because we were doing that monitoring. And then we could share the information with the homeowner so she could make some better decisions about how to spend that money that, she would that the increased energy was was costing because of that chest freezer and with the monthly savings from the chest freezer she was able to buy a new energy star high performance chest freezer and actually put a little bit extra money in her pocket from wow. that so there's you know it's sort of not just you know building the house but it's actually the relationships with the homeowners and the sort of ongoing dialogue of what we can learn about how homeowners use their home so that we can give good advice to the homeowners and actually sort of know what to pay attention to for the next one. It's a really great feedback loop that we get so much uh, education from our homeowners. They're real partners to yeah. us to help us do this better and better and better. We couldn't do it for others if it weren't for the homeowners that kind of lean in to work with us um, in this program. And what a beautiful thing, right? It's, you know, collaboration you know, community oh, yeah. connection, you know, and as a result, the, the finished product gets better and better and better and better and everybody wins. I mean, it's, this is right. what I take away, you know? Well, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the investment that our, that our homeowners have as, as being clients for our students is invaluable. That's what we get is we get extraordinary clients that, you know, no money in the world could ever uh, provide otherwise for, yeah. for us. And then, and then the clients in turn, uh, they get a home and, and we think that that's a, a really great, um, kind of mutual aid model. What we get is invaluable. And we hope that what, what, uh, they get in turn out of the fantastic gift they give us and our students of, of being great clients. Uh, we hope it helps make their lives a little better as well. Oh, and, and no doubt it does. Um, to learn more about the amazing work that Rural Studio is doing for the greater good, please go to ruralstudio.org on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That handle is the same, at Rural Studio. My guest today is Rusty Smith. He is the Associate Director of Rural Studio at Auburn University. I hope that you'll come back because I feel like this is the tip of the iceberg of a conversation that needs to grow because we all need to know. We need to know about this work and how we can support the work. So thank you, Rusty. 
Oh, you're so welcome, uh, Lisa. We need you to know about it too. And we really uh, appreciate you and your audience's interest in the work that we're doing. We couldn't do it without you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen, and on behalf of my guests, Mary Beth Shin and Rusty Smith, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day, and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere, from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.